0: We are in the book of Hosea. We have been for the past two sermons uh, in this series that I have titled, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. The title is taken from the hymn written by George Matheson, Scottish hymn writer from the last century. And if you are familiar with uh, the, the hymn, you will know that the words are beautifully penned to talk about the love of God that is all pursuing that refuses to let us go and refuses to let us be who we are. I chose that title primarily because I believe that is the subject of this book of Hosea. And I wanted to speak from the book of Hosea because I wanted to speak about the book of love, about the subject of love. And I wanted to speak about the subject of love because I think it is a much misunderstood subject in the evangelical church today. And I say that because of what I read, of what I see, of what I hear preached in various places, of the people who are believers and who are in churches and who seem to have a weird notion of God's love. And the notion that I hear is that it is a tolerant kind of love. Love equals tolerance. Love equals Letting you do whatever you want to do because, hey, who am I to judge you? Love equals letting you be, you in your small corner, I in mine, let's live, let's uh, coexist, let's tolerate one another. That's what I hear, that's what I see, but that's not what I see in Scripture, especially in this book of Hosea and especially in the chapter that we just read, chapter 3. And so I want us to to study this book, I want us to study this chapter because I, I believe we need to understand love as God sees it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't love. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is from God and knows God and there's a connection between love and knowing what true love is and knowing who God is and so if we get love wrong we get God wrong we get the gospel wrong we get salvation wrong love is vital to understand from a biblical perspective and that is why that is largely why i i want to undertake the study of love because we we seem to have created this idea of love because of its tolerance, because of its all-inclusivity, that makes us feel comfortable. And so we've created a God in our own image, unfortunately, and we're guilty of the second commandment. And, and we do this because we, we then become, uh, God becomes easy to understand, and we can put Him in a box, and we can figure Him out, and then we're not so um, judged. But do we want a comfortable God or do we want the true God? We've, we've sung, we've, we've, we've broken bread together, we've talked about and, and read scripture um, and hopefully that we have done that in an attitude of true worship. But we can't be true worshippers if we are not worshipping the true God. We can sit here in church singing songs of repentance, of redemption, of salvation. We can be reading scripture and we can be worshiping the wrong God. Because the concept that we have in our minds, the lens with which we read scripture is so twisted and perverted that everything we read, even though it is from the word of God, is not the word of God because we have these preconceived notions about who God is and so i want us to i want this i want the word of god to to dispel those preconceived notions so that we can be confronted as required with the truth about who god is and so this is not just a, a study in in love it is a study in the nature and character of god i also want us to do this study because um, very often I hear and see people think that the God of the Old Testament is, the God, is different from the God of the New Testament. There's a discontinuity between who He was and who He is now. Or He was different then and He's different now. And so that doesn't apply to us, but this applies to us now. And so we, 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 we create this wedge in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we think that's okay, but we're actually creating a wedge in the character of God. And then we drive a wedge actually between ourselves and God because we think He's different when He actually isn't. So I want us to see the, the plan from Genesis to Revelation. It is one God, one plan, no change of plan. And that's so, so important for us to understand that God is constant and consistent when we live in a world which is anything but. so I want us to see that He is the same God. Because when we see that He is the same God, we see He was the same yesterday, today, and forever, we will see how the God of Hosea, in His situation, is the God of us today, in our situation. Just to do a bit of a recap, because it has been quite a while. In chapter 1, God's accusation is that the land commits flagrant idolatry. I think the choice of words is very clear, the land, because the land is a covenant. The land signifies God's promise to his people. The land is a big deal as those of us who have studied Joshua and are now into Judges, the land is a big deal. And if the land is is, is, is committing flagrant idolatry, not just idolatry but flagrant idolatry, then the covenant is being broken. And we see a very difficult command from God to Hosea. Go take a wife of harlotry. Most commentators will say, and I agree, that it is go marry someone who is going to prove unfaithful. Why? Why such a difficult command? Hosea, because I want your marriage to be a picture of my marriage to Israel. I want people to see in your marriage, in the state of your marriage, in your failing marriage, the state of Israel's failing marriage with me. And so just as a side note, but very important, this is how God sees His relationship with His people. It's not just, it's not just creature and creator, it's husband and wife. It's highly intimate it's precious it is not a relationship one of of um, transcendence but absolute intimacy and sin is anything that compromises that intimacy that preciousness of marriage god gives hosea a second command to name his children in a devastating way. It's like naming your children Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Why? Because it is a reminder of what is to come. The names Jezreel, and Lo ruhama and Lo Ami, speak of scattering, of no per, of no mercy, and not being my people. God wants. Israel to feel the weight of the judgment that is about to hit them because of the names of these children that no parent in their right mind would choose. Hosea, I want your marriage to be a picture of how Israel is treating me and I want your kids to be a picture of how I'm going to respond. But even though the end is nigh, The chapter closes with hope on the horizon. There's promises of all the names being reversed and the curse being reversed because God in His grace is going to draw His people back to them. And so the bottom line is that the infidelity has occurred. Judgment will take place, but there will be restoration. Beautiful. Beautiful. And so we, we, as, as, we, as we read these, these chapters, as we get, try to get our heads around what's, be, what's happening, I, I want us not to just lose track of the narrative, but I want us to keep track of who God is. It's, it's vital that we understand his relationship with Israel because it's different to the way he relates to us in the sense that while Israel is yet in exile and is yet to come back to him, he is gathering the nations to him at this time, which is us. The Gentiles. Chapter 2, after the wonderful promise of, of regathering, chapter 2 again brings us back to reality where there's charges of infidelity being brought. And we see that God is, is angry with Israel because what Israel is doing, and He speaks through, through Gomer, and what she is doing is, Israel is attributing all God's provision to the gods around them. The rain that comes, the, 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 the produce that comes, the crops that grow, the, the, the bread that is grown, the, the, the wine that is made, everything is not only attributed to pagan gods, but is also used to worship those pagan gods, and God is saying, I am your provider, and now you are going after these pagan gods thinking that they are providing for you. And what I'm now gonna do is I'm gonna take it all back. And so I'm going to take all, all your new wine, I'm going to take away all your crops, I'm going to take away the rain, I'm going to do all these things. Why? So that I can remind you and so that you will be confronted with the reality that it is Yahweh who is your provider. And the application for us could be that when God removes all the things from our life, it is perhaps to remind us that we don't need things, we need Him. And yet again, we see hope on the horizon after all the judgments in verse 23 of chapter 2. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Hope again on the horizon. Wandering, philandering Israel will return. God's pursuit of His people may appear harsh, may appear judgmental to us, but He does it in love so that He will bring His people back to them. Why? So that our hearts will not hanker after false things, temporary things, but will hanker after what has truly eternal value, which is Him, God alone. And so this brings us to chapter 3. And I want to title this, a Tale of Two Loves. Because I believe that we are given a contrast of two different kinds of love in this chapter and it is important for us to understand the contrast so that we can understand what is true and what is false and therefore what we want to practice and what we want to identify with and how we see God. We must understand in the, in the picture and in, in, in throughout these chapters that we have read that Hosea represents Yahweh. Hosea is a picture of Yahweh. Gomer is a picture of Israel. As we read this, who are we? We're not Hosea because we're not representing Yahweh. We are Gomer because we are unfaithful. How are we to understand ourselves in the context of Hosea? How are we to apply his situation to ours? 3,000 years ago, failure to understand who we are in this narrative will take us all into all different sorts of directions. It would be a serious failure because we would fail to understand the gospel, because we would fail to understand forgiveness. James Montgomery Boyce calls this perhaps the greatest chapter in the Bible. Because he sees in this, and and, and I agree with him, a picture of Christ's redemption of us. Just to give you a a flow of the text, there's five verses, so we'll have a five-part outline, really simple. There will be five C's, so uh, I'm staying with with the alliteration, and we'll come to them as we we look at each verse. But the first part is, the Lord said to me, so I bought her for myself, verse 2, then I said to her, verse 3, For the sons of Israel, verse 4, and then afterward they will return. So we move from the past, the Lord said to me, to a series of ongoing events. Then I said to her and I bought her. And then we move to uh, the the immediate future for the sons of Israel and something's going to happen. And then the distant future where afterwards they will return. So that's just the general flow of of the narrative. And in verse 1 where we see the accusation and the condemnation of the failure to be faithful, We see that being reversed in verse 5 where the people are faithful. But what happens in between is uh, that's where the interesting part of the story is and we see the movement from judgment to redemption to perhaps sanctification even and then glory. And so in this chapter we see that wonderful movement of, of ourselves, from being under God's judgment which we have sung about and talked about and read about today to actually now being included in His family. That wonderful story of adoption, because of what Christ has done. And God gives us a picture in His in in what He's telling Hosea to tell the people of Israel about what He's going to do. And so we see some gospel themes over here that we would take that we would do well to take heed. Because in this story of Hosea, I believe we do see Christ. And I do believe. We can very clearly see ourselves. So let's, let's look at the text and let's read it once again. And so I just want to remind you that after we have judgment or we have a condemnation, judgment, hope, chapter 1, we have condemnation, judgment, hope in chapter 2, we're brought back again to the harsh reality of judgment in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the lord loves the sons of israel though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes just in case you're wondering what the raisin cakes are people think that it is could have been uh, um an offering that was given to to the to the gods to the pagan gods as some sort of offering some sort of food offering it also could have been an aphrodisiac and so there was uh, because there was the temple prostitution and there was the, all of that was rife in the land this could be one of those things uh, that um um the Lord is talking about, but regardless of what the raisin cakes are, they are symbolic of Israel's love for other gods. So then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself, for fifteen shekels of silver, and a homer, and a half of barley. Then I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So will I also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days. Verse 1, I'm calling the contrast of love. Because I do believe we see two kinds of love in this verse. We see Israel's love, we see Yahweh's love, we see Hosea's love, and we see Gomer's love. There's a parallel between Hosea and Yahweh, like we said, and there's a parallel between Gomer and Israel. And they're very different kinds of love. They're not just different, they're opposite. Yahweh and Hosea demonstrate a selfless, sacrificial Holy, covenantal kind of love. And Gomer and Israel demonstrate a selfish, perverse, betraying, disloyal, unholy kind of love. And so this is a tale of two loves, not for academic interest, just to make a point in in an outline, but to understand where are we in this? What are we aligning ourselves toward? We start off with... The wife of a prophet is having an affair. The wife of the man who claims to speak for God is having an affair. That's not to put it crudely. That's not to be um, just sensational. That is the accusation. Do we think that's scandalous? I think it's fair to say that we would consider it to be scandalous if the wife of a prophet is having an affair. However, let me ask you another question. Do we think it equally scandalous if the people of God are having an affair? If we are outraged and morally incensed by hearing about Someone's or the wife of, of the prophet being in bed with another man, what about the people of God being in bed with other gods? I want us to, to think about that very carefully. It's easy to, to be outraged when it's happening to someone else, but when we are in that position, and not when we, not when we are the victims, but when we are the actual perpetrators, Are we outraged at our own unfaithfulness? Is it scandalous in our eyes if we have affections for anything but the risen Lord? We've, we've had communion today. And when we have communion, we, we come with, with hearts of penitence and, and seeking God's forgiveness. But are we like that throughout the week? Or do our hearts belong to someone else? We see scandals reported in the news, financial, political, celebrities, social And the whole reporting attitude is, my goodness, how can these people sleep at night? How can we sleep at night? If, I, if we are being unfaithful to our God. I think the text wants us to appreciate the perversity of sin and the text wants us to bring about an equivalence and an equality that idolatry is just as scandalous as infidelity. Idolatry is just as scandalous as infidelity. Now we can say, uh, you know, um, I'm not bowing down before an idol, I'm not uh, going to a, uh, any other religion, I'm not practicing, I'm, I'm a Christian, I come to church. Yes, you can do all things, but where is your heart? I'm a good person, you know, I, I pay my taxes, I'm not murdering, I'm not killing, I'm not, you know, doing anything of of of, of the sort that would be seen morally um, repugnant in the eyes of society, but... Can you see that you are morally repugnant in the sight of God? And I think that's that's the key thing. When we go back to Judges, and those of us who are studying Judges will see the compromise that Israel made in getting into bed with the Canaanites and not destroying them as God commanded. Why? Because you know, hey, let's be let's be friends. Who wants war? And so we give our daughters to their sons as wives and we take their daughters as wives for ourselves and what appears to be societal harmony turns into spiritual compromise. What turns into tolerance becomes sin. So the text wants us to appreciate That we can be cheating on God in so many different ways If we are not faithful to His word The spirit of compromise I believe is, is that first step towards idolatry Where we would take things that are good Career, family, money Relationships Power, authority And when they become an ultimate source of pleasure for us, an ultimate source of meaning for us, we lose our first love. Our hearts become unfaithful. This is the tale of two loves because Goma is loving. Let's not not forget that. She is practicing love. In her mind, she is practicing love. In Israel's mind, they are practicing, they are being religious. They are doing the right thing. They are, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say my prayers. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to be a moral citizen. I'm trying not to do anything to my neighbor. But are you being right according to the word of God, not according to your standard? What is the problem in judges? Every man was right in his own eyes. Uh, what I want us to understand is there is an inbuilt desire in us to do the right thing. Everyone is doing the right thing but it is not the right thing according to the right one. We see a definition of love and in, in our day and age where it's listen to your heart. Have you heard that? Do what's right in your eyes. Don't, I mean, Be true to yourself. Put yourself first. You deserve it. If your heart is telling you where to go, go. If your spouse perhaps is, things are not working out, the spark is gone, then maybe it's time to move on. Are we outraged at this deviant definition of love? Are we scandalized by this definition of love? But then comes the greater scandal. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by her husband and yet an adulteress. Go again. This is not the first time. Go again. Lord, she's an adulteress. Yes, I told you she would. But go again. Love her. Just as the Lord loves Israel and chases after all these gods and their raisin cakes. That's the bigger scandal. Go again. Love a serial cheater. Don't abandon her. And this is where we see the nature of God. He is a God who pursues His people. It will be uncomfortable for us. Because He confronts our sin because He is a holy God and He cannot tolerate sin and He will not tolerate sin because that is His character. But He loves us. And so if we get the definition of love wrong, where it's all about tolerance and not being judgmental, we get God wrong. We follow after the wrong God. We actually follow after that which does not love us, which is actually evil and which will harm us. We need to understand, God will not compromise His love for us by letting us compromise with sin. God will not compromise His love for us by allowing us to be who we are. Do we love this God? This is the God of the Bible. This is the God and Father of Jesus Christ. He says in Jeremiah 31, Behold, I have loved you With an everlasting love. Not a compromising love. Not a tolerant love. An everlasting love that seeks to conform us to the image of His Son so that we will worship Him in holiness and truth. If we walk away from this God, if we walk away from this love, we are hopeless. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband and yet an adulteress even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes, so I bought her. What? How do you move from loving to buying? Obviously Hosea is doing the right thing, he's obeying God. Go love her, so I bought her. Uh, (laughs) Where's Goma? Why do you have to go and buy your wife? Some commentators would say that that, um, that Hosea is actually trying to be like a customer to Homer, to go and pay her rate so he can avail of her services. But I I, I I tend to disagree with that because in verse four um, he actually says, "You shall not play the harlot anymore." Or why would she listen to that if he's actually paying her to be a harlot? I, I believe what is happening here is, as has been the problem in chapter two, that she's taken herself for her lovers who have sold her. Sold her into slavery. And, and in, when you were, when you were um, in, in the ancient world, there were three ways largely is how you could become a slave. You could either be sold into captivity to war, you could be taken as a, like a prison of war, or you could be born into slavery, or you could be sold into slavery to pay off a debt. I think that's the case. I mean, the text doesn't say that, and so it's conjecture. But I do believe that, I mean, the text says that price has been paid. And again, we remembered a price that has been paid today. A very dear price. It's very, very nonchalant language, so I bought her for myself. But don't miss the drama. A man has to go into the marketplace to bid for his wife. Where are we in this? When Christ has to purchase us from the marketplace of sin. So I bought her, don't miss this, for myself. Hosea is not paying a price so that Gomer can continue her philandering ways. He has paid a price. He has bought her for himself. Hosea is not buying her so she can continue in her old ways. Christ has not bought us so we can continue in our old ways. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Zealous for good deeds. Titus 2.14 There's two brides here. Goma And us. Hosea purchases his bride to be his bride. Christ purchases us to be his bride. No competing affections in our hearts that would take us away from him, that would reduce him to be an also ran. And I want us to understand love again. It's not just that love has a price to pay. We like that idea. We 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 all are okay with that idea of being sacrificial, you know, it's good. We should be sacrificial. But that love has a price to pay for my sin. I'm not the one doing the buying. I'm not the one with the purchasing power. I'm the one who is hopeless and helpless and needs to be bought. Otherwise, I'm a slave forever. How many of us love this God who walks into the marketplace? To free us, because when he's walking into the marketplace, we know why he's walking into the marketplace. Because we're slaves, and and he's not there because you know it's, there's nothing nice in us. There's nothing lovely about us, and so when there's a price to pay, it means that I have to acknowledge my guilt. I have to acknowledge the wrong that I have done for being in that and putting myself in that position. Do I love that God whose love reminds me of my sin? You can see why churches don't want to preach about this anymore. You can see why this message does not have currency anymore. In a culture which is all about self-esteem and self-worth and self-affirmation and wanting to be the best you can be and, and all that's great. But how does God see us? How are we in his eyes? I love Chad always says that, that, that truth or reality is what God sees. Truth is reality in God's eyes. How does he see us? Hosea is not moved to, to redeem Gomer because of his great love for her, rather because of Yahweh's love for him. He has experienced love and forgiveness and now he recognizes that God is asking him to show love and forgiveness to his wife. He is no different. And so we see the idea of redemption being bought with a price. Verse 3, Then I said to her, "You You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. We have the contrast of love, the cost of love, and the conditions of love. Many days, um, how do we understand this? We we need to understand this in the context of verse 4. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days. And So there seems to be a parallel between verse three and verse four, which tells us that the many days is not an infinite amount of days, but a finite amount of time. Because in verse five it says, "Afterward they will return." So in the same way that that Hosea is saying, "After many days you shall stay with me for many days," he's talking about a fixed amount of time, and he says he he says you will do three things. There's a condition to to your purchase. You will stay with me. You will not play the harlot. You will not have any relationships with any other men and so you will change your home you will change your mind you will change your actions doesn't repentance tell us that you will stay with me you will not have any other men you shall not play the harlot so I will also be toward you and so Hosea is saying that basically he's, he's going to refrain and restrain himself from having any physical relationships with his wife. And though it is unstated over here in the same way that after, after the many days Israel will return back to, to, to Yahweh it seems to be that after many days Hosea and his wife will have that beautiful marriage relationship once again. That seems to be the idea Do we like that word, condition? Oh, I thought God's love was unconditional. I chose that word purposely because it is jarring. I want it to jar us because I want us to understand that that grace accepts us for who we are but does not leave us as we are. God accepts us for who we are but he doesn't let us stay who we are because who we are is sinful. And he doesn't want us to stay sinful. He wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Why should we do that? Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life. But with the precious blood, the blood of Christ, First 1 Peter 17 to nineteen, and I, I, I bring us back again to the nature and character of God and the nature of love, because a lot of us, a lot of Christians, are happy to be saved from hell, but not from sin. I don't want to go to hell. Yes, good. I, you know, I want to dodge the bullet. But do I want to be saved from my sin? Am I looking for the return of my bridegroom like Israel is meant to look to the return of her bridegroom because not, not only will I be with him but because it, there will be no sin. Do I understand that Christ has paid a price for me not just to deliver me from death but to deliver me from the power of sin? Be transformed. Do not be conformed. And so there is an expectation put on Goma after her redemption. Do we recognize that there is that there is an expectation put on us after our redemption? Oh, and again, you know, this is not a this is not a call to sinless. Perfection, none of us is perfect Can be perfect, this side of eternity But it is a call to just have a different change of direction Our affections have changed We are new people, we are new creation God has taken out a heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh What does that mean? I don't behave the certain way I don't love the things that I used to love Gomer, you are no longer meant to love Like you loved before Peter You are no longer to love like you loved before. Do not walk as the Gentiles walk, but instead lay aside the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self which is in the likeness of God, in righteousness, in holiness, Ephesians 4. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days You shall not play the harlot Nor, nor shall you have a man So also I will be with you Why? Now this is interesting why, why is he saying this? Because verse 4 The sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince In the same way That you and I are going to have a relationship In which our physical intimacy is restricted So for many days Israel or God is going to distance him from himself from Israel because they will not have king or prince they will not have sacrifice or secret pillar and they will not have ephod or household idols So the, the, the idea of, of they will not have a king or prince is or you will not have any political or military leadership The idea of sacrifice or secret pillar means Uh, you will not have any place to do your sacrifices. There will be no temple, perhaps. There will be no sacred pillar. Now, these uh, sacred pillars were these sort of fertility columns that were in their day. Um, They used them for for their religious ceremonies and purposes. Without ephod. So the ephod was the the priestly garment that the priests used to wear. And they used to have a, a vest pocket to have the Urim and the Thummim to cast lots and figure out the will of God. And people at the same time, or household idols. I mean, that's what they used, the, the teraphim, that's what they used for their little household decisions. And so Yahweh is saying a time is going to come when you will have no political or military leadership. You will have no temple for your spiritual identity. You will have no ephod or household idols for your supernatural direction you're going into judgment, you're going to exile. And so here we see a a prophecy that judgment is coming. And so the question that we would ask is, what kind of love is this? Is this the kind of love that I want? What kind of love, what kind of God would send his own people into exile? A God who is a holy God who wants to purify for himself a people who will be a testimony to his holiness to the nations. What kind of love is this? A holy love, a purifying love, a non-indulgent love. Doesn't just let us do what we want to do. And we need to understand that God is saying, if you read Romans, you'll get uh, uh, Romans 11, a, a bigger picture. For a while, Israel has been exiled. For a while, God has left them to their own devices so that he can bring in the nations. I have have many sheep. And I want to get all of them into the fold. But for this time, Israel is under restraint. They have yet to return. As he says in verse 5. But regardless, it's the same God, it's the same plan, it's the same love. And so we move from the chastisement of love to last verse 5, the character or the conduct of love. Afterward, after this time where there will be no military leadership or spiritual guidance or temple or sacrificial anything, after the afterward... The sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. This hasn't happened yet. And so this was uh, in the future for Hosea. It's still in the future for us. But it tells us what's going to happen afterward. The sons of Israel will return, change direction. They will turn back Israel is not worshipping Yahweh today. No matter how much we may want to support Israel, no matter how much we think they are God's people, and they are, but they are not His people in the sense that they are not giving Him the worship and acknowledgement that He deserves. But it will happen. They will return, they will change their direction, they will turn back and seek the Lord. Seek to, to, to look keenly with the, with the objective and intention of actually finding and gaining what you were looking for. And not just seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, their God. That personal relationship has returned. That idea of belonging has returned. they will seek the Lord their God and David their king this was the time when there's a northern and the southern kingdom there's, 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 there's been a, a rift in the unity of the nation of, of God's people but when, when they return they will return as a unified people no more north and south no more problems about who's my king David is my king, obviously David is dead who's the king then? Christ because he is the one who is in David's line he's the one who occupies David's throne forever and ever and so we have a clue about a unified Israel under the kingship of Christ which means he's coming and he's coming to establish his kingdom when will that return when will that happen when they look upon him and mourn for an only son they will confess that he is their king as per Isaiah 53 we we thought that he was he was despised by God but he was wounded for our transgressions the chastisement that should have fallen on us God laid on him by his wounds we have been healed the Lord has laid on us the iniquity Of us all. That's what we remember this morning again. The Lord has laid on him. The iniquity. Of us all. We who were. In the marketplace of sin. Slaves to sin. He has paid the ransom. He has purchased us. For himself. That is why he is a jealous God. He will not allow us to have any competing affections, any competing interests. Because what can compete with Him? Who can compete with Him? When, when He redeems us, do we understand the value of that redemption? We will, if we understand the depth of our sin. If we think sin is just a mistake or it's just an accident we will not value the redemption of Christ as much as when we realize what an offense. What an offense was Israel in God's eyes? What an offense was Goma has done to Hosea? How offensive is our sin in God's eyes? How precious is His redemption for us that purchases us to be His own? Beloved Let us live as His own. His own. And then let us look forward to that time when He will return so that we can be with Him in that beautiful bond of husband and wife. Let our marriages be a picture of that. Let our affections be a picture of that. Let our worship be a picture of that. Shall we pray? Gracious God and loving Father, Your Word is so precious to us. Your Word is so marvelous because it shows us, Lord, the, the history of Your work. And Lord, it shows us the future of your work. And in this present time also, Lord, we see you work in us through your Holy Spirit. Who points us in the direction of your Son. Because there is no other name in heaven or on earth by which we must be saved. Except in the name of Christ. Lord, he is our Bridegroom. He has purchased us with His blood to be a pure and chaste bride and Lord we wait for that day when He will return to take us to be with Him but in the meanwhile help us to live as His bride pure and spotless because He has paid the price and He has freed us from that slavery to sin so let us live as people who are free let us live as people who are holy and we just ask this In His name and for His sake and for His glory. Amen.